0: The first published adventure for D&D was Temple of the Frog, which was included in the original D&D supplement Blackmore. The first standalone adventure, however, was Palace of the Vampire Queen in 1976, a year after Temple of the Frog, and wasn't published by TSR. Many of the early adventures were tournament adventures, meaning that players were being scored on how well they did in the adventure. No pressure here. Also, try not to die, and watch out for the green demon face.
1: Now we present to you, Thacko
2: with Advantage. Welcome to Thacko with Advantage. We're two friends that have been playing D&D a long time. While we both love lots of other RPGs, D&D is fried food on a stick in the carnival of our lives.
0: Hi, I'm Ange. I've been gaming for over 35 years. In 2014, I started writing for Gnome Stew, and I've been running the Gnomecast, the Stew's podcast, since 2017. And in 2021, I became Head Gnome, so I'm in charge. <laughs> <laughs> of all of that stew.
2: And I'm Jared. I'm the review gnome at Gnome Stew, and I've been gaming since roughly 1985. In addition to writing reviews at Gnome Stew, I've got my own site, com, where I write additional reviews and opinion pieces on a variety of RPGs.
0: After we look at the games we're running in the campaign journal, we'll be discussing the best practices for running published adventures. Then we're going to have some recommendations for D&D-related content for you to check out in our downtime research segment. Let me just finish up this campaign journal. Picking up right where we left off in the last session, my players made their way deeper into the lair of the Cult of the Snake Queen. (laughs) Many of the things I've designed for this game have been based off of specific maps, and this one was no (laughs) different. Uh, Zipiku released the Medusa's lair or something like that. That is actually, funnily enough, is in the Lair's book, the Home Field Advantage, Uh where like when you're looking at the Medusa, you flip a page and like, oh, there's the map that Ange used (laughs) for her game. I had known I wanted to do something with the Yonti in the game since, you know, since I started the campaign, since it seemed particularly appropriate for Zendrick. And I saw that map and let's say it just started the planning of the dungeon. Uh, The story behind this one is that a group of Yonti had taken up with a Medusa that they treated as their queen and were hence kidnapping and eating and transforming people and doing all sorts of horrendous things that make it okay to go punch evil in the face. <laughs> the players wound their way further inside and realized that this was a very old structure. And I wanted to reinforce that there have been many civilizations that have risen and fallen um, in the wake of the, the the giant empire. This is something that's mentioned in the emeron material, but I don't think is necessarily explored as much as it could be yeah there's something about Zendric that just civilizations don't get to rise indefinitely because the land will make you fall
2: you have a timer on your uh, civilization
0: yes yes <laughs> uh in the first full room they found some prisoners tied to columns all suffering from the initial stages of the poison that is used to convert any humanoid into a brood guard. Without hesitation, not even thinking about it because this is Vandreth, he doesn't have an intelligence score. <laughs> he used his paladin abilities to cleanse the prisoners of that poison. The prisoners were all still weak, so they backtracked with them and got them set up in a little side alcove so that they were at least a little safe and the players could go continue exploring The whole complex. Renna's player couldn't actually make it to this session, and it was suggested that maybe she stay behind with these folks. And I'll admit I had a little (laughs) bit of a panic moment because I knew what was ahead of them, and they needed her. Thankfully, they did decide to keep her with them, and I didn't have to meddle on an out-of-character level to say, maybe you want to keep the lady who can cast the fireballs. The next area they went into was a true horror show. And that made them want to wipe every last one of the Yonti off the face of the planet. This was the Room of Transformation, where the victims being turned into brood guards were tossed after they were too weak to try and escape. Here they found pits that housed various victims in states of transformation amidst other snakes and corpses. And Sax's friend and Lil Sina's brother, Zerish, was among them. Before they could do much with this information, the first big fight started. Because in the previous session, when they fought the guard snakes in the entryway, they cast a silence spell to be really quiet. And then Perrin, the bard, Bladesinger, he kind of cast a shatter spell outside of the <laughs> silence zone. So, like, like, there was no secrecy. These guys knew these folks were coming. So the first big fight was up against six brood guards and a nightmare speaker. Um, It was a decently challenging fight, but they still ripped through them pretty quickly. Unfortunately, the Nightmare Speaker only got off one spell, and I never actually got a chance to use her Induced Nightmare ability. If I could do it over again, I would have had her use that first and then use her spells. But I thought, yeah, I had her do an Area of Effect Fear spell on them, and it really only hit two of them, and one immediately saved, and the other was fine after a moment. I wish I could have done it over again and actually used her special ability first.
2: I have done that so many times too, where it's like, I know there is a signature ability that I want this monster to use because it is their signature ability and I don't open with it. And it's like, I, I should open with it. Always open with the signature <laughs> ability.
0: Really? Don't, don't save the fine China. <laughs> when the fight was over, they checked on those still alive in the transformation pit. Of the six, four were too far gone. Um, so they kind of, quietly put them out of their misery. And then the other two, they basically did some skill checks and decided that, well, decided they learned based on the information that a remove curse or a lesser restoration can stop the transformation if it's not too far gone. Mm-hmm. But at that point, only, I believe Vandreth only had one lesser restoration he could cast. So he cast that on Zarish. And then on the other person they saved, who was a tortle, Vandrith basically burned the rest of his paladin abilities, his paladin channel divinity, mm-hmm. to cleanse him of poison, which I explained isn't going to save him. You still need to do the remove curse yeah. or the lesser restoration, but you at least maybe gave him another day, Yeah, at which point you can get a new cast of lesser restoration and be able to go from there.
2: We're resetting the timer.
0: <laughs> right. I happened to mention to them that there were these odd statues around the room, (laughs) and they never investigated. They never did anything with that information. They just...
2: Snakes plus statues. What could be going on?
0: What could be going on here? They put Zarish and the, the tortle back with the other folks they'd rescued and then continued on, in which point they got to the guard room, which had two yaunty abominations. Now... These guys, on paper, based on pure number, were supposed to be the harder fight. They were not. They were a decent challenge, and they hit hard, but it was just two of them against six smart players, Mm -hmm. so they were able to wipe them out pretty quickly.
2: Yeah, they're kind of meat sacks. (laughs) Yeah. Like, there's nothing wrong with meat sacks, but they don't have any tricks.
0: Yeah, they don't have any special abilities, and... I probably should have paired the nightmare speaker with them, but the next fight was the big (laughs) one, and that one actually put them through their paces. There was a spiral staircase going down, and they debated taking a short rest before going any further, but in the end, smartly decided they couldn't take the chance. Because honestly, if they had taken a short rest, I was totally going to attack them (laughs) during that short rest, because, I mean, this is what you do.
2: Yeah, you're in the middle of the lair. The encounter music is still playing.
0: <laughs> yes, yes. Down below, they found a trap door. And once they got through that, there was a long corridor lined with, again, more strange statues and a line of yaunty peer bloods waiting for them at the end with bows. The party started making their way down the hallway, again, ignoring the strange statues <laughs> At which point, the Medusa stepped out and cast a lightning bolt down the hallway. (laughs) They were a little surprised by that. (laughs) To make this challenging, I actually took the basic Medusa and buffed her up with some sorcerer spells. And I may have buffed her a little too hard. (laughs) My players cut through things like it's butter, so I really wanted to give them a challenge. And there was a couple points where I realized I could have wiped them (laughs) off the map. Because she still had another lightning bolt that she could have cast, (laughs) along with a couple of other pretty powerful and dangerous area of effect spells. (laughs) So I also put into play lair actions on this one from, again, home field advantage compendium. And in one of the things that can happen in a Medusa lair is that on turn 20, anyone who is standing next to one of those strange statues can get hit is that strange statue suddenly animates enough to womp them. <laughs> and sure enough, because my players were ignoring the statues, three of them, I think, were standing next to a statue and got hit. In fact, so her lightning bolt did a whole lot of damage to almost everyone in that hallway. And then Perrin, who is the glass <laughs> cannon, the bladesinger bard, he was still on his feet. He'd saved, so he only took half damage. And then he was standing next to one of these statues that hit him and knocked him out. (laughs) The Yanti Pierbloods were pretty much fodder, and they were out of their way quick enough. In fact, one of the lair actions was to summer a swarm of snakes, and that swarm actually lasted longer than any of the (laughs) Pierbloods. The Medusa turned out to be a very deadly opponent, because it was mostly her spells and her hit points. She had a lot of hit points, and her spells were pretty effective. The thing that wasn't effective as I thought it was going to be was her gaze. Yeah. It turns out a Medusa's gaze is only effective within 30 feet. And once the players realized <laughs> that, the only person to get within range was Vandrith, the paladin because he was like, no, I need to punch this evil in the face. <laughs> and so there was two rounds where he had to make saves against turning to stone And he made his saves both times. In the end, I mean, they were so tapped. They had no spells left. I believe Sax, the cleric, had used all of his spells. Rena might have had a couple of first level spells left, but all of her her high damage spells were spent. But they were wearing her down. And in the end, Cargill, the goblin artificer, hit her with a fear spell, (laughs) which is some sort of natural thing that goblins can do, because <laughs> if you're actually smart, a goblin in an underground space should be terrifying. <laughs> and she actually failed her saving throw on that, which meant she could not get any closer to him and was afraid of that small man over there <laughs> with the clockwork <laughs> thing on his shoulder. And she only had about 40 hit points left. So I made the call that she wanted to live to fight another day. <laughs> so she dimension doored out of there. Renna had cast Mind Spike on her. So Mind Spike has the effect that you know where the target is for an hour. So technically they know that the Medusa teleported up and out of the lair and is now running through the jungle, but I don't think they're going to try and pursue her because they are really tapped out at this point.
2: Sounds like it.
0: We ended it there because I also realized I hadn't figured out what treasure was going to be in that encounter. (laughs) so I need to do that before our next session.
2: Were you feeling guilty that you beat them up that much and didn't have treasure waiting for them?
0: <laughs> I did, I did. Well, I had some ideas on stuff I wanted to have in there to seed other exploration, so I wanted to have a large stone carving mm-hmm. that was a map of Zendrik before the fall of the giants. Oh, that's neat. So I figured that'll give them some clues because the land is totally different now. hmm But I wanted to give them some clues of where some stuff, what direction some stuff might be.
2: Relative positioning, even if it's not the same terrain.
0: Right. I need to put that in there, along with some actual, you know, like, here are some cash monies and here's some fun magic stuff.
2: (laughs) The funny thing is, you were talking about the range on the uh, Medusa's gaze, and I'm picturing, like, a deleted scene in Clash of the Titans, where someone takes Perseus aside and says, It's okay. It's only 30 foot range.
0: (laughs) I know. And the map was so spectacular because it's this long corridor that funnels them right into her gaze. And I realized it's only six squares away from her. And this corridor is about 30 squares. (laughs) (sighs) Okay. Not that I wanted anyone to turn to stone, but the fact that the threat wasn't even really a threat was like, that stinks.
2: Yeah, it goes back to that signature ability thing that we were talking about. That's what a Medusa does, so you kind of want it to have a chance to do the thing.
0: <laughs> yeah, so, I don't know. Anyway, Jared.
2: So, this is the second episode in a row where I do not have a campaign journal. I am going to hang my head in shame. <laughs> uh. It is not
0: your fault. <laughs> Tis the season of both sickness and ennui.
2: But we are fairly certain now that the session zero for the game that I am running for my daughter's friends... Is going to be on March 11th. Awesome. I am going to go like print out way too many uh, character <laughs> sheets for them and laminate some cheat sheets and all that sort of stuff because that's what I like doing.
0: Have you decided to limit like what books they can use to create characters since some of them are new players or are you leaving it the whole breadth and depth of 5e? I'm
2: wondering that now because two out of the five players have played Third edition before. On one hand, for example, my daughter played a half ogre monk, so she is <laughs> completely ready to play like kind of oddball. Maybe not the the easiest classes to play. Maybe not the simplest uh, species to play.
0: Here is the multiverse of monsters. <laughs> yeah. You will want to look at this.
2: <laughs> so at the same time, you know we have some other people that really want to feel what is the core D D experience that I have never felt before because I've heard so much about it and I don't want to go too weird on them, but at the same time, you know, I'm not sure. We'll see. I'm probably going to bring the Xanathars and Tashas and Monsters of the Multiverse. Not necessarily saying here, pick all of these, but kind of like, I'm thinking I'm going to say, here's the stuff that's in the core book. If there is some thing that you have in your head, we might be able to find it over here in this book, but not necessarily hand them that book and say, pick something from here. You know, that sort of thing.
0: And to be fair, The subclasses they have in Xanathar's and Tasha's are fairly well-balanced. Yeah, I... Fairly well-balanced with stuff in the the player's handbook.
2: Yeah, and I feel like for certain classes, there actually are some better options if you open up those subclasses. Because, like, for example, I personally really like the Monster Hunter Ranger. Because that, Mm -hmm. you know, if somebody's going to say, yeah, I'm used to watching The Witcher. Well, I have a subclass for you. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so, I mean, I, I don't feel like any of them are too weird compared to, you know, the baseline D&D experience. Yeah. It's more like I don't necessarily want somebody to get so far in the weeds that I'm trying to explain to them, you know, get Yankee and Gazeri and
0: <laughs> things like that. Well, it's, it's things like somebody might want to play a rogue who is kind of dashing and daring and like, here, take a look at the swashbuckler subclass. Yeah. The ones that are in the player's handbook don't really give you that
2: honestly some of the the most exciting subclasses to me that i have read did come out in later things like for example i dearly dearly love the grave cleric that is like one of my favorite cleric domains now and that definitely wasn't from the core books um i love the phantom rogue on one hand you can make them mildly creepy on the other hand you're keeping trinkets from things that you killed you're kind of a serial killer rogue. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, um, I think I think that's why I'm going to have everything there in case somebody wants to look at something, but I'm not necessarily going to introduce it as the default, like pick from all of these. That works. And there's the off chance somebody's going to say, wow, it would be fun to play a bunny person. Okay, well, (laughs) since you said that, I can help you. I have no idea how likely that is, but if it happens, it happens.
0: Well, I mean, it depends on how exposed they are to anime. Mm -hmm. If they've got some anime exposure, they'll probably lean into the weird.
2: I I think in this case, there is a lot more like um, being used to like Game of Thrones and um, The Witcher and things like that. So we'll see how this goes. All right, let's slide on into our Dungeon Masters workshop.
1: Welcome to the Dungeon Masters workshop.
2: Today, we're going to look at Using a published adventure for your game, rather than creating your own content from scratch. Um, We're looking at this primarily from the lens of running adventures as campaigns, because many of the adventures that have been produced for 5th edition are campaign-length adventures, but we'll also take some time to look at integrating shorter adventures into an original campaign. With that said, what is your history running published adventures for... D or other RPGs, Ange?
0: So I've run and attempted to run a fair number of standalone DD adventures from the 3, 5, and 4.0 days. In 5E, I ran my players through the Waterdeep Dragon Heist campaign, and I've been using uh, Dragon of Ice Spire Peak as the basis for my teen DD game. As a player, I've played through Tyranny of the Dragon Queen, and I'm currently in a Waterdeep Dungeon of the Mad Mage campaign. Outside of D&D, I have run a fair number of published adventures. My Savage Worlds East Texas University campaign was based around the Degrees of Horror plot point campaign, which is an interesting concept where rather than giving you a scripted out adventure, it's more, here are the things you want to have happen during freshman first semester, freshman second semester, sophomore first semester. It basically just gives you some bumpers so that you have an ongoing story throughout the whole campaign, but you can fit in other adventures along the way that are more personal to your players.
2: It's kind of like having story beats and a few set pieces.
0: Yeah, and one of the things Savage Worlds does really well are the, their one-sheet adventures, which is literally just one page, usually double-sided, with here is the plot idea, here's an NPC, do with it as you will. And I used a few of those when I ran it and they're great for giving you some ideas to fit into your campaign. More recently I've been learning how to run Vason from Free League and I used one of their adventures from the <laughs> Mythic Ireland and Britain book, specifically the Philantowill incident. <laughs> now, I speci- Jared is laughing because I specifically <laughs> avoided the Swedish setting because I was afraid of pronunciation and then I chose the adventure that was set in <laughs> Wales.
1: Oh yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. i should also probably note that i was paid to write an adventure for cubicle seven but it has not been released yet
2: i'm looking forward to getting to see that <laughs> me too <laughs> so over the entire course of me playing uh role-playing games i always like to mention this because i know so many people love this adventure but when i tried to read the keep on the borderlands that came with that basic <laughs> set that i got from my sister i did not know what to do with it because i had no idea that you're at this place and maybe you should wander around and talk to people until you get clues on where to get treasure. I was like, there's all these people here, but I don't know why they're here. (laughs) What are they doing? (laughs) On the other hand, I loved the Isle of Dread once I got the expert set. And I think part of that was because it's very obvious from the beginning in the Isle of Dread. It starts off with, you're going to the Isle of Dread to find this treasure that was buried there. Now in between finding that treasure, all this other stuff happens. And I got that. Like suddenly that clicked. It's like, Oh, I get how this is supposed to work.
0: You mean it helps to have a plot hook at the beginning to draw the players in?
2: (laughs) Yes, it does. And the funny thing about that is that was actually probably the first time I ran anything from a published adventure because I ran some encounters from the Isle of Dread for my Sunday school class when I was trying to prove to my Sunday school teachers that D&D wasn't evil.
0: I am actually quite impressed that they let you do that and didn't just immediately ban it.
2: This was like a multi-week endeavor of um, mainly me, but a few other people like glommed on once I started doing this of saying, hey, let's not just blanketly assume that everything on this weird videotape that you got in the 80s is true. <laughs> <laughs> this is what the game is actually like. So that was kind of fun, but it was only running a few encounters from it. The first time I actually ran multiple adventures strung together, more or less the way they were supposed to be run when I was running uh, Marvel superheroes. And there was the M1, ME1 through ME3 trilogy, which was all cosmic adventures. What was great about this trilogy was this was when Thanos was still dead in the comics. And Thanos gets brought back in this trilogy and you get to fight Thanos. So this was kind of like ahead of the curve. And, you know, the players are supposed to be playing people like Thor and Silver Surfer and Doctor Strange. So I couldn't not run that one. Those were a lot of fun to run. Back in d and I ran. I never ran... The original Dragonlance adventures, but I did run some adventures from DL15 and DL16, which were the two anthology series that they did at the end of the Dragonlance series that were just like, these aren't necessarily part of the War of the Lance, they're just things that happen around Ansalon in different places, so I, I used those. I ran the uh, DLE1 through DLA3 Dragonlance series, which was the first second edition series, which I can't even summarize them because really weird stuff happens in those <laughs> I ran Halls of the High King for my ex-wife as a solo adventure. That was kind of interesting. I ran a Twilight Tomb for my kids in 3rd edition. Um, I ran the Rise of the Ruin Lords adventure path for Pathfinder. And then I ran Council of Thieves. I ran tons of Pathfinder Society adventures. I've run Last Minds of Fandelver like three times. I've run various Adventures League's adventures, Storm King's Thunder and Tales of the Old Margrave, which is an anthology series that came out for Kobo Press's Midgard series. That about covers all of the published adventures that I have run. <laughs> on that note, what are some of the cons of running a published adventure, Ang?
0: As we kind of mentioned when you were talking about Keep on the Borderlands, many published adventures fail to offer a good hook to get the players involved in the adventure. Authors don't always provide an on-ramp for the GM to help make the players think think it's a good idea to get involved in this it's just assume that the players will do the thing and be on their merry way with the adventure ultimately it doesn't matter if you've got a fantastic adventure lined up if you have to force them onto the train tracks of the adventure players will sometimes go along with it because they're there to have fun and know the gm may not have anything else prepared and this is better than going home and vegging in front of the TV. (laughs) And that can work for a group that just wants to roll some dice. Mm -hmm. But for many other players, it'll be half-hearted and won't excite them in a way that will invest them in the game and make everything more fun for everyone at the table, including the GM. Another frustration I have with published adventures is that they often make assumptions about what the players will do that don't always align with how the players actually act. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've read an adventure and asked out loud, have they ever actually played with anyone? (laughs) For example, in Dragon Heist, there are clues to be found based on going to the city watch and asking permission to cast Speak With Dead on the victim of a fireball. The thing is, my players took the heist in the title literally. And there wasn't a single character in that group that would ever consider trying to work with the watch. <laughs> there was another situation in that campaign where all of the major clues you're supposed to figure out about this murder scene. Basically, the players are supposed to overhear an NPC musing about the scene. And I'm like, what? I mean, this is a really cool NPC, and I enjoyed Role playing him with the players, but not to the degree that I wanted to sit there and monologue them <laughs> to give them the clues they needed. Yeah. The players need to be able to engage with the scene, not just with the NPCs. It's like whenever an adventure <laughs> n- fails to consider the different approaches players might have, sometimes they write solutions, not problems. Yes. And therefore, it's a major pain for the GM when the players don't come at it the same way the author expected them to.
2: I believe someone we both know recently wrote an article on Gnome Stew about introducing uh, problems but not solutions yes. when it comes to role-playing games. <laughs> <laughs> What's funny is you mentioned Dragon Heist, and I was a player in a Dragon Heist game, and I was playing a monk, and I decided that my monk was always like doing cool ninja stuff, like being on top of buildings, because I decided to run around from rooftop to rooftop I completely ruined an assumed ambush that's supposed to happen in one of the things. Because I'm just up there on the roof saying, hey, those guys look like they're coming to attack the rest of people in the party.
0: Slightly different. There's supposed to be a chase scene. Mm -hmm. And it's supposed to go across the rooftops of Waterdeep. I had six characters in that campaign. (laughs) The tabaxi rogue easily got onto the rooftop, started going. He's a rogue. He's a tabaxi. (laughs) He's got lots of movement. The half-orc bard also got onto the roof. Didn't have quite as much movement, but still was going. The tiefling bard tried to climb up, fell. (laughs) I joked that she fell into an open sewer, (laughs) at which point the paladin stopped and just spent the entire scene laughing at the tiefling. (laughs) Meanwhile, the cleric and the warlock are both standing in the tower where this all starts, watching the tabaxi and the half-orc race across the rooftops and they were both like nope (laughs) at the end of this chase is supposed to be a fight with a chain devil which if my tabaxi player had been even slightly less astute at how games work (laughs) might have gotten him killed yeah (laughs) so luckily the player was astute enough to know i'm not going i'm just going to okay i know where they went I know where they <laughs> handed off the thing. I can wait for everyone else to catch up to me. That whole scene did not go even remotely how they wrote it in the book. <laughs> it was still a very cool, memorable scene, but not what the authors intended.
1: Just
2: looking back over all the stuff you said, hooks are a big deal. That I've seen a lot of adventures that just don't... They either don't have hooks or they don't have compelling hooks. Mm-hmm. Certain... PCs just are not going to bite on certain things that you dangle at them. On one hand, yes, take the hook that the DM gives you. On the other hand, if you're writing an adventure to be published, come up with different hooks that might get different people. If you're only guessing that it's going to be like, oh, I'll dangle money in front of them. That might work for some, but it's not going to work for all of them. So maybe dangle money, maybe offer them the chance to do good, Maybe give them a chance to find out some arcane secrets. Find a few other hooks that you can cast broadly at the uh, players there.
0: You have to consider why are the players going to have their characters engage with this plot.
2: Another thing that I noticed, and this is something older adventurers are really bad at, but even some newer adventurers get mired down in this, which is they don't talk directly to the DM. And what I mean by that is you'll read through all of these rooms of this dungeon and there's a key in this room... And it never explicitly tells you in that encounter, hey, this key is important. You need to make sure they have this key or else they will not be able to go to level two, which is where all of the rest of the story is at. And because it just expects you to pick up and read every single room and extrapolate, you might not have your PCs pick up that key. And then you're suddenly at that point at that door going, oh, I really wish they would have really hammered this, that they should have taken this. Yeah. The other thing that i would like to bring up that is interesting is there are kind of some setups and some adventures that are almost like bait and switch one of the adventure paths for um pathfinder uh, second darkness really played up riddleport as where your pcs are at and they introduce you to this casino and there's this big arch with these arcane runes on it and you think all of this stuff is going to be important and after the first couple of adventures you never go back to riddleport And you're traveling all around the (laughs) continent. So you get players that are like really invest. We're going to save this city. And boy, do we love this city. I hope you don't love it that much. And to be fair, Wizards kind of did the same thing with Baldur's Gate Descend into Avernus. There is a lot of emphasis put on, oh, look at Baldur's Gate and look at all the stuff you can do in Baldur's Gate. Also, now that you're third level, you're going to go into hell and never come back to Baldur's Gate.
0: (laughs) It's like they wanted to make a Baldur's Gate source book. Yeah. But they also wanted to make an adventure.
2: It's how far people detail those assumptions that they make. It's fine to assume that PCs at this level have access to teleport or speak with dead or whatever. It's not fine to assume that 90% of people are probably going to use speak with dead. So I'm going to put a lot of emphasis on how this adventure will unfold (laughs) if they use speak with dead. That kind of gets off track a little bit. Now that we have nitpicked some adventures to death, why would you choose to run a published adventure, Ange? What are the pros of running one?
0: So despite complaints that we have stated previously, <laughs> it really does take a lot of weight off the GM's shoulders. It provides you with a wealth of information for a given setting, along with the motivation of the NPCs involved, plus a good plot, hopefully a good plot, that explains you know, why the stuff is happening that the players are engaging in. It's a good framework for a campaign or a session, and it lets you do the customization you need to make it work at your table without making you have to create everything from scratch. Because while creating everything from scratch can be fun, it's a lot of work. Many GMs with busy lives are the ones that find themselves running off a published campaign as a way they can keep running for their players without having to abandon GMing at all because they don't have time to create everything from scratch. And a good adventure can also be a good way for a new GM to get into running games. Dragon of Icepire Peak is very specifically designed for both new GMs and new players. It's very user-friendly or new GMs, and new players. Published adventures are essentially toolkits. They give you everything you need to give your players a good session or campaign. The plot, the NPCs, the monsters, the location. Sure, it's all stuff you could do on your own, but that really is a lot of work.
2: And has hit like most of the really good, broad reasons for this. I'm going to go into a little bit more of the esoteric thing. When I read a campaign setting, I kind of like to know what the people that designed the campaign setting have in mind for... What you do in that campaign setting? What makes it unique? How do adventurers adventure in this setting? What kind of threats do they face? What kind of rewards do they get? There are some adventures that do a really good job of presenting that campaign setting in a way that you get what that campaign setting is about. I think Storm King's Thunder is probably a really good adventure for teaching you about. All of the Northlands in the Forgotten Realms because you end up traveling all over the place, venturing into these different cities and finding out, you know, why you want to save these from different giants. Call of the Netherdeep, which is the adventure that was tied into a Critical Role, is based in the Wildmount region. And it's actually like a really good thing for playing up these different unique cities and political organizations that are in Exandria in the Wildmount region, like the two countries that are at war and all of the tensions that that creates. Empire of the Ghouls is a great one for Midgard because it takes you like all over the central section of the Midgard setting. So you're going from Zobek to Morgau to all of these different places. So you're learning about, hey, there's this place where there's dwarven clans. Hey, there's this place where everything is run by people that think that they're daughters of Thor. And now here's vampire country. (laughs) (laughs) Beyond introducing settings, published adventures may save you time, depending on the type of DM that you are. (laughs) They don't always save me time when I'm running a published adventure, but they do make me more confident of what I need to prep because I know what the adventure is giving me. So I know what I need to either remind me of what the adventure wants me to do or to fill in the gaps that I think the adventure has. Having published adventures also helps me set a baseline to return to when I design side quests so that I don't just drift off somewhere and never return to something that seemed like it was going to be really important in the campaign. I also think there is a big benefit to playing through stories that other people have played through, because that kind of gives you those neat war stories to tell with other people about, you know, hey, I met this famous NPC villain and this is how we dealt with them with our party. And then you can you know, go to a convention and relax and talk about how that's not what we did when we met Strahd. <laughs> so, I mean, it does kind of create this, this shared community when you have those uh, adventures in common. The other thing is, I don't know how many other people do this, but I like trying to hit the tones and themes of a particular genre. So I kind of like it when an adventure presents me with these things and I can see how closely I can... Get those notes to deliver what it, it's supposed to be delivering.
0: I think there is a lot to learn from Published Adventures, both as an experienced GM and as a new GM, because it, like you said, it teaches you what the designers were intending for the game, for how that game is to be played, how to craft an adventure, how to craft a campaign. I have a friend who started running when we were playing 3-5 and I loved this friend dearly, but he was a bad GM. <laughs> you know, I, we've we've talked about this. When he was running three five, it was not good. We played because he was a friend. He was part of our group. No one else wanted to run at that time. He's running for us. You take what you can. You take what you, it was presented to you. But he was bad. And then fourth edition came out, and he offered to run again using one of the fourth edition adventure books. And all of a sudden, like he got it. He got how the adventure was structured how it moves from one area to the other, how challenges are set up. Mm -hmm. And it made him a much better GM. He is my friend currently running the Undermountain campaign, the Dungeon of the Mad Mage. And... His NPCs are still jerks, (laughs) but he's trying to be better. And it's the the campaign has been going for a year now. We're still having fun with it.
2: So when you start a campaign using a published adventure, do you approach it differently than if you were starting a new campaign from scratch?
0: So some of what I'm gonna say is gonna be a do as I say, not as I did. (laughs) When I ran Dragon Heist, I skimmed through the book, but I didn't read it as thoroughly as I should have. This (laughs) meant that there were a few points where I was scrambling to figure out how to get from one point of the campaign to another. And Dragon, I like Dragon Heist. I do recommend it, but it is not for the faint of heart (laughs) because it presents you with a scenario that has four potential bad guys, four potential big bads. And in the middle chapters, it basically gives you intertwining paths that your adventure could take. So it's almost like a choose your own adventure with like, Okay, we're on this page, and then we need to flip to this page. And I didn't prep those sections as thoroughly as I should have, Mm -hmm. which meant I was kind of scrambling. I just focused on each chapter as we got to it, and I would have understood the connective tissue better if I had prepped better. When I decided to use the Dragon of Icefire Peak, I approached it a bit differently. This time, I made sure I had a better understanding of the adventure options, and I essentially transcribed the adventures from the book to my own notes so that when I ran it for the kids, I had everything on the paper in front of me and I had I had typed those words or at least edited those words <laughs> and like had a much better understanding of what each of the the adventures that you could they could go on were presenting to them.
2: What I usually do is I will read through the whole adventure first, take some notes before I pitch it, but this isn't that weird because for me, This isn't necessarily normal for other people because I'm probably going to read through it to do a review anyway. So I'm already reading it and I'm already taking notes. In fact, there's been many times when I'm in the middle of doing something just for the purposes of a review and I go, I got to run this next. (laughs) I'll, I'll set it aside. When I'm doing a campaign from scratch, I don't always pitch the full campaign idea until we start making characters. But if I do want to use an adventure, I kind of flip that direction around because if I really want to run say, Empire of the Ghouls, I kind of want to tell people, hey, I want you guys to be normal adventurers that would be hanging around in a city like Zobek. Does that sound cool for everybody? And if it sounds cool for everybody, then, you know, we start digging in a little bit more. Even when an adventure has some hooks for PCs, I often build in something that ties them a little bit more directly to the story, because sometimes even, even good hooks sometimes are, they're, they're good hooks, but they're not deep hooks sometimes you can come up with things that are a little bit more solid. One of the things I thought was really funny, the Storm King's Thunder game that I ran, we played the first part of it. We played uh, Lost Minds of Phandelver. So when we go to transition into the um, Storm King's Thunder part of it, our Goliath had a running joke where he did not speak common. And he worked for the Lord's (laughs) Alliance. And half the party spoke one language that he spoke, and the other half spoke the other language that he spoke. So the whole party never had a conversation together at one time. I do not recommend this, but it was amusing. (laughs) But what I ended up doing was I assigned him, because he was working for the Lord's Alliance, I assigned him a translator. And the translator was a half-giant, who was half-frost giant, and her uncle was Harshnag, who is the giant that ends up being your guide for a big part of the adventure. You know, I thought, they have a reason to run into this person now. They have a personal tie here. I liked being able to do that. When I was running uh, Tales from the Old Margrave. It is an anthology series, so it's not necessarily meant to be a campaign, but I wanted to run it as a campaign. And one of the things that I did to tie everyone and give them a reason to do all of these adventures throughout the forest was I gave everyone an Archfey patron. It helps that three of the people in that party were bear folk. (laughs) (laughs) So the King of Bears was one of the uh, Archfey that ended up being their sponsor. Customizing hooks like that I think can definitely help. I try and communicate what might be coming up or what would be important in a session zero. And just talked about this before, like if somebody's making a ranger, don't let them pick something that's you know, I'm gonna fight fiends. No, you aren't. I'm sorry.
0: <laughs> How about giants? Yeah, We're running Storm King's Thunder.
2: <laughs> yeah, maybe that sounds better. You should have an idea of what character types may not work well, and you should have a chance to let people build connections to places. If you're going to run, for example, um, Rime of the Frostmaiden, it might be a cool idea to know why all of your people are in Icewind Dale. Did they really grow up there? Did they just wander there because they don't belong anywhere else in Faerun anymore? (laughs) I don't generally like, some adventures have kind of these cold introduction moments where it's like, oh yes, you know this NPC. And it's like in chapter two or chapter three of the adventure. And I try and notice when those kinds of NPCs are coming up, and bring them towards the beginning of the adventure. You know, that way I can say, there's going to be this person, blah, blah, blah. How do you know them? You know, this person has been important to you. This, you know, why, why are they important to you? And that way, when they just show up in chapter two and say, remember me, we've known each other for years, then the PCs are going, you're right. We have known each other for years. <laughs> <laughs> so, Ange, how do you prep for game sessions when running published adventures?
0: I kind of mentioned this previously, but if I'm being smart, I will almost completely rewrite the adventure into my own notes. (laughs) Honestly, this is the way I used to do college level schoolwork, you know, just transcribe the notes again to put it into my head. This actually works really well for me. Um, It helps me have a better understanding of what is coming up, how it all fits together. And, and, You know, therefore, I'm not scrambling trying to flip through the pages when we're at the table. I also make sure to look at the adventures from the perspective of how I expect my players to engage with it. If we're talking my regular group, I've got a fair understanding of the way they're going to approach things and destroy everything like it's made of butter. (laughs) But I know I can add some extra things that will make it interesting for them. Also buff up the encounters but (laughs) I know what they'll push against and I can adjust for the things I know they won't engage with. If it's the younger players, the kids who are more inexperienced, I can kind of pat it a little more to make it more likely that they will do the thing that the adventure expects them to do. And then they go knock on the door of the farmhouse that is full of orcs and they have a fight with everything (laughs) inside rather than one battle. It's your players are going to do the unexpected thing You need to look at the adventure to figure out what it is set up to do, how it is set up to do that, and be able to adapt for how your players are going to engage with it. I also try and, as Jared just mentioned, feed in those personal connections for the players. If there are NPCs that are in there, uh, if the players have met them before, I try and build that up. If I can swap out an NPC for one they already know. I will do that. And sometimes it's just adjusting a plot point or a monster to be something the players are more interested in because you really want to tool it to fit your table.
2: And honestly, remember, you're a player too. You have to enjoy this. Yes. If there is a type of monster that just bores you to tears, don't use it. Find something else. (laughs) Swap it out. It's fine. Here's where this is going to be funny because I work in a school district. I am not an educator, but I do work in a school district. so. One of the things that is not common to everyone, but it does work for certain people in learning things is when you take notes, sometimes it's not even so important that you refer to the notes that you took. The process of taking the notes encodes what you're reading deeper into your head than if you just read it without taking the notes. And that's what I will do a lot of times when I'm getting ready to uh, play a section or to uh, prep a section of a published adventure. I will read through that chapter again and start taking notes. And sometimes... I never look at those notes, but I just remember, oh yeah, behind that door is this thing, because I remember writing that down when I was, you know, when I was, you know, prepping this thing. Um, Another thing, like Ange was saying about rewriting the whole adventure in your notes, I do a thing when there is a dungeon. I oftentimes will draw a stick figure version of the dungeon so that I don't forget, oh, there's a thing that branches off here. And I don't necessarily have it showing that it's 10 feet wide and 30 feet long, but I will have like, Here is this hallway, and here's where it goes off to the side, and here's where these things split off here.
0: I do the graphic design bullshit, and I just put the image in my notes.
2: (laughs) And that works, too. (laughs) And also, the funny thing is, I'm remembering doing a lot of this stuff from face-to-face play. If I own some of this stuff in Roll20, the map is in there. Mm -hmm. So it's not even a matter of me needing to remember the map or making a little representation of it it's just there i really look for npcs that i want to play There are sometimes when i read an npc description and i am like i am so going to ham up this character
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> there are also sometimes that i've noticed people will over npc a section where it'll be like you meet this npc and this npc takes you to this npc who introduces you to this npc And there are times when I read something like that, I just condense it into one NPC. (laughs) Yeah. It happens all the time when people convert novels into movies. Go ahead and do it in your adventures, too. (laughs) If those other NPCs aren't important, squash them all into one character.
0: (laughs) This is just a side tangent, but because Dragon High starts with you getting the mission from Volo, he sold my players his latest book, which the Tabaxi had him sign... And then started using as a checklist <laughs> of monsters he wanted to fight.
2: Oh, that is awesome.
0: He would occasionally refer to, I pull out the book and check this off.
2: And there's been times when like, I love running an NPC so much, I have them show up in parts of the adventure <laughs> that they didn't show up in originally. <laughs> Sometimes you do have to guess how much of an adventure you need to prep. That's especially true of like dungeons where you're really want to remember, you know, where all the little bits and bobs and hidden doors and treasure is at. But you don't necessarily want to read an entire gigantic mega dungeon, but your PCs could go just about anywhere. So, you know, it's one of those things where you kind of have to learn your character's play style. JT got to tell us a horror story about that on the Gnomecast not too long ago. (laughs)
0: Listen to a recent Gnomecast. It'll be in there.
2: I also, at least once per tier of play. So like if the adventure, you know, has part of it taking place as tier one, tier two, tier three... At least once per tier, I try to have a side quest that thematically is still part of that adventure, but is tailored to the PCs and is something I came up with myself. Just because that makes it feel more like this is my campaign, and it also makes it feel more like this is something tied to stuff the PCs fed me in their character backstories or told me that they want to have come up. For example, in Storm King's Thunder, you might end up coming up with a particular NPC giant that is... A recurring pain in their backsides. It may not even be one that is in the adventure or not, but it might be more fun to have that same giant showing up over and over again to just be a nuisance to them. Hey, and <laughs> how many options are too many options when running a published adventure?
0: So I didn't actually write any notes for this question because I'm like, <laughs> I don't know. Dragon Heist had too many options, but it was designed <laughs> to have too many options. I think for the most part, When I'm running a published adventure, I want to know where the adventure expects them to start, where it expects them to end, and then have enough wiggle room in the middle that my players don't feel like they're on a railroad track. Because that is one of the problems you can have with an adventure that's not designed for the player agency to matter as much as it should. I know um, the first part of Tyranny of the Dragon Queens is supposed to be a journey from point A to point B. And that can feel very much like a railroad if you don't give your players the ability to engage with what they want. But sometimes an adventure can give you too much. I know with Dragon Heist, that middle section just had too many variables at play. That Because, again, my poor prep skills, I didn't necessarily understand how well they fit together. And because you didn't necessarily know what the players were going to choose to do next you didn't necessarily know which thread to pull on in the adventure so i don't know jared has more of a response to this <laughs> question than i do
2: i like that you brought up sometimes the adventure has too many options sometimes the dm or you know the people at the table bring too many options into their expectations into a game too
0: yes in old school dnd there was very much a feeling of the gm couldn't tell the player no yeah You know, whatever the player wanted to play is what the player was allowed to play, even if it didn't fit the campaign the GM was trying to run. And that can happen in a published adventure as well.
2: And and I really think that, on one hand, you're playing this game together. You should all be talking and getting on the same page. So I don't necessarily think the DM should just be able to have veto power, but I think the DM should also be able to say, this is how I'm picturing this. This is what I think would be fun. I think that if we go that far out there, it might kind of step on the fun that I'm hoping to have with this? Is there something else that would still be fun for you that doesn't go that far afield? One of the examples I was I was looking at was if you play Curse of Strahd in Adventurer's League, you see some really interesting PCs that will show up in Ravenloft, which is really <laughs> weird because I have this image of Barovia being this very insular paranoid place. And it seems very weird to have like Leonin and Loxodonts and Locathaw, like lions and... Elephants and fish people walking around town and people just being like, oh, there are strangers. Like, no, they're not just going to say those are strangers. <laughs> that is something that, you know, maybe you need an exorcist for. But uh, <laughs> but at the same time, if you have a conversation, sometimes concepts that seem kind of out there are not as out there. For example, when I was a player in Curse of Strahd, our entire table decided to make characters based on Disney princesses, which at first seems like a terrible idea for Chris of Strahd because this is this gothic horror campaign. Except that all of us leaned so hard into our characters being horrified. By the fact that Barovia was such a depressing place, and no matter what we did, we couldn't make it any better.
0: <laughs> I mean, if you dig into the the, the stories that <laughs> created the Disney princesses, this is not that far-fetched. Yes. I love Disney. Disney disney them. Yes. Which kind of removes them from the horror that is inherent <laughs> in some of those fairy tales. There's a whole whole other story <laughs> after the prince wakes up Sleeping Beauty. Whole other story involving an ogre stepmother and her children and wanting. it, it, it There's more. It's, it's not all. It's not all singing singing songbirds.
2: The funny thing is, and this other example that I was going to throw out there though is, and talked about this the other day when we were talking off the mics, which we do a lot. For something like Spelljammer, I have no problem with having like a Kender and a Leonin and a lizard folk, and it's Spelljammer. <laughs> <laughs> Of course, everyone's going to wander onto that ship.
0: I recommend any GM, if your player wants to play something that is outside of the scope of what you expected, take some time to try and think of if there is a way you can make that fit, where maybe you can meet the player halfway.
2: Yeah, don't knee jerk.
0: Yeah, but at the same time, as Jared said, it is your fun too. So if a player's character is too far afield, it is okay to try and reel them back in and get them more intact with what you were trying to create.
2: The other thing about having too many options in a game is there are lots of supplemental things, both from Wizards of the Coast and from third-party publishers, that introduce new subsystems. For example, if you get Matt Colville's Strongholds and Followers, you get these rules that you can have for, I own this building and it gives me these bonuses and I can collect this income from it. And that's cool, but the problem is sometimes those options will butt up against what an adventure assumes. Because a lot of times, adventures do not assume that you're using any of those optional subsystems from anything. Dragon Heist is a great example. If you use strongholds and followers rules, it kind of cuts into what the adventure already outlines for Tavern that you you get in that game.
0: Because Volo is broke.
2: Yes. (laughs) So, I mean, it's one of those things where you kind of need to You know, you need to know what's going to happen later in the adventure. Another example, in Empire of the Ghouls, there is a really neat mechanic for how they handle you having extra people in your party that the PCs aren't controlling. And it basically acts like on initiative count 20, these things happen as long as you have these allies. But again, if you're using some other supplement, like even Wizards of the Coast, if you gave everybody a sidekick, character like they have introduced in uh, Tasha's that's going to kind of mess with if you all have sidekicks it's going to mess with that whole panic for that on count 20 these followers doing a certain thing it's just sometimes you need to look ahead and make sure that there aren't inherent subsystems in the adventure that you're going to be stepping on if you add subsystems from outside the game
0: it's fine if it's your own homebrewed campaign Because you can plug in any pieces you want. Yep. But if you are running a published adventure, you have to make sure there's going to be some synergy there, that things will work together.
2: And you may want to completely redesign the thing to just use that third party thing that you're really happy with. But then you're getting further and further away from that adventure, making your life easier. (laughs) 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 All right. So, Ange, we might have touched on this a little bit previously, but what if you missed an important plot point in the adventure?
0: Depends on how important it was. (laughs) Honestly, if it's a a minor and small detail, I'll just let the players know the information after the fact. Like if it's like, oh, yeah, hey, this guy gave you this and I forgot to do it during the scene or just completely ignore it and change the other part of the game where that's supposed to be relevant. You can try and adapt the adventure to what is happening at the table. That's what it's all there for. I think it is important to state that it doesn't matter what is on the page. The game only exists based on what happens at the table. So while Jared is correct in that if you (laughs) go too far afield, somebody will say, hey, I played Storm King's Thunder, and somebody will go like, hey, what did you think about the floating giant tower? And they'll be like, what? (laughs) You know, you, you will end up with misaligning these shared experiences, but at the same time, It is your table. You can do what you want. You can change and adapt it as you need.
2: Yeah, I would say, this is just touching on the same things that Ange said, assess how much damage missing that thing really does to the overall adventure. There might be a situation where, you know, the description says, this door is locked and magically reinforced and only this key will work and you can't pick this lock and you can't break it down and they forget to get the key and you as the DM forgot that that key was going to be important. You know what? You can let them pick the lock.
0: Either lock your plot <laughs> behind a locked door that players can't open.
2: Yes, this is also true. However, I will not say that every adventure writer remembers that advice when they're writing adventures. Yeah. <laughs> and like and also said, you can always narrate in between scenes and say, "Hey, you went back and did this thing." It's how much buy-in you want to have. If you think that that thing has some narrative weight, just ask them. It is perfectly okay to montage something. If you have somebody forget something and they need to backtrack through a dungeon and you really do not want to pay through them going all through there, go ahead and ask them, okay, give me one thing that you had to deal with when you backtrack through this dungeon and ask the next person, what was another thing you had to deal with? And then there's a story and nobody has a chance to die because you already know that they can make it through this dungeon and then they're just back and they have the thing that they missed and it's all good. It can really be stressful to try and fix too much in the background by warping things to where this thing actually has to happen the way that exactly the way the adventure. sometimes it's, it is just better for your sanity to say that challenge that I forgot did not exist we're just gonna move past it and go to the next part of the adventure because I know the next part of the adventure is interesting play the parts of the adventure that you enjoy if you skip something don't feel like you are a lesser DM for not going back and doing that unless it was really really something that made you want to play the game in the first place. But if that was like the key that made you want to run this adventure, you're probably not going to forget it. Yeah. All right. So, and what if you like most of the adventure,
0: but some of it just isn't your style. Change it to be what you want or ignore (laughs) what you don't like. It's your game. You can, as I said, just a few minutes ago, you can do what you want. The game does the, 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 the adventure does not exist until it's at the table in front of your players. So, When I ran Dragon Heist, the entire second chapter of Dragon Heist is about doing things for the various factions that are at play in Waterdeep. So the Zenturim, the Lord's Alliance, the Harpers, my players didn't give a crap about any of that stuff. The only player that even remotely had a connection to any of it was not interested in engaging with the narrative at that level. She wanted to basically smash things, smite things, and snark at the other players. That was what she was into. So trying to force them into doing all of these things for factions that they were not connected to would have been a waste of time. So I pretty much completely just ignored the entire second chapter. You know, I had a couple of other little side adventures the players did, but we went from first chapter to third chapter pretty much. Straight through because second chapter would have completely derailed that campaign and I would have lost my players' interest.
2: You know, that's one of those things like talking about this earlier. You weren't gonna have fun with it, so you jettisoned it. If you really did want those factions to work out, I I wouldn't have them just show up in that chapter like they did. I would do something in session zero where I would say, Here are all these factions that are at play in Waterdeep. Tell me two of them that you have a connection to. Yep. Then if you really want to play the faction game you're already laying the groundwork for it ahead of time because that that does just kind of come out of out of the blue. Like, don't get me wrong. I love having Forgotten Realms specific things. I love a lot of the factions in the realms, but that section does kind of, kind of come out of nowhere in Dragon Heist where it's like, hey, all of a sudden you're working for factions
1: now.
0: And it's all these little side quests based on, <laughs> you know, you're supposed to have everyone who is associated with the faction is supposed to get asked to do a thing for the faction. And I'm like, if I tell Julie that her paladin needs to go do this, she's going to tell me to go screw. <laughs>
2: Like Ange said, don't be afraid to customize. I had a whole thing that came up in Storm King's Thunder where... Spoilers for Storm King's Thunder. Basically, (laughs) the group is looking for certain artifacts that are related to giants that are also located at the Uthgart Burial mounds for the Uthgart Barbarian. And in the adventure, it is assumed that these items are buried at each of the mounds. There's a section where it says, if you dig roll like 1d4 and you know if they get this then it's the first place they dug otherwise they have to keep digging somewhere else and it was like I read through that and I was like this doesn't sound like fun to me so what I did was I actually made the giant artifact something that each of the Uthgart had incorporated into the altar at that sacred mound so that when the PCs would show up they would examine the altar and then figure out oh they built this around that now we have to figure out how to extract that from the altar without trashing the whole altar or we could trash the whole altar and have an entire barbarian tribe after.
0: <laughs> I mean, you make choices. Uh huh.
2: But I mean, I liked that a lot better because then it was when you go to the mound, you're, you see the thing you're looking for. It's not a, a side game of let's see if you're digging for 1d4 hours <laughs> before you find this uh, random relic. Oh. So yeah, I mean, customize things, especially when it's something like that. There There is no reason that the story is better served either by digging or by having The thing is part of the altar. Neither one of those are better. It's a personal preference thing. So just do what's going to make you happy. So, and let's say you play through a campaign-length adventure and you finish that adventure. Should you keep running that campaign after the adventure ends?
0: That is totally up to the GM and the group and specifically the adventure you ran. Sometimes it's good to wrap up the campaign. Other times there might be more stories to tell. You have to judge each situation on its own merit. For example... If you are running Tyranny of the Dragon Queen, that's an epic scope. That takes you from first level to as close to 20th level as you can get to take on Tiamat. Yeah. There's not much more to do after that.
2: Yeah. That's a good career for an adventurer.
0: (laughs) Yeah. On the other hand, Dragon Heist takes you to fifth level. Players are probably going to want to keep going after that if everyone's enjoying the campaign. Although I will say I don't necessarily recommend going from Waterdeep Dragon Heist the Waterdeep Dungeon of the Mad Mage, very different feelings.
2: Yeah, it's weird because they almost seem like it's a continuation, but it's not really.
0: It really is not. I think if you have players in Dragon Heist and you try and switch to Dungeon of the Mad Mage, they're gonna get disappointed because you have this very city-based game where they're going around doing different things, engaging with different NPCs to a mega dungeon. Very different feel. It can work, but... But I caution against it. There are other adventures you can switch to after Dragon Heist or just continue with your own campaign. Mm -hmm. It's a good point to take a temperature check on yourself as the GM and the players in the group. I ended the Dragon Heist campaign after we finished it, probably because I would have killed the players. (laughs) I don't deal well when there's party conflict. And it was all done in fun. The players were having a lot of fun with it, but I was to the point where there was no logical reason for that group to stay together yeah. because <laughs> everyone hated the two bards.
1: <laughs> I mean,
0: it just... It, it, so I'm like, no, no, we're we're done. One of the players took his character from that campaign and is playing that character in our Dungeon of the Mad Mage campaign. So he is continuing, but that was his choice.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You want to get a feel for what the players want to do next.
2: D and D is weird. Because there are adventures that, like, when I was in the um, Prince of the Apocalypse game, that ended when we were 12th level. And if you're just looking at the rules of d and it's very easy to say, but I want to get to 20th level. But depending on what your character has seen and done, maybe you don't. <laughs> you know, like, I love that cleric, but I, was, I didn't really want to jump into another campaign with him right away. Because, hey, we fought one of the Princes of Elemental Evil. I'm going to go back to my temple of uh, Jurgle and write down all the people that died during this adventure. Cause that's what I jo- uh, what I signed
1: on for.
0: <laughs> I'm also going to advocate here for a good, strong gaming group has multiple GMs. Mm-hmm. So when you finish a campaign, it is a good time to let somebody else take a turn running because I have plenty of campaigns I've played with small groups, but they're usually based around a specific GM. So when the game is done, it's done whereas my home group, we alternate who the GM is. So if you have a core group of players you like to play with, encouraging and developing other GMs within that group is very conducive to the long, long-term long health of that gaming group.
2: The other thing I wanted to bring up is, um, I am going to recommend something that you can see it play with Critical Role, and that is the first two campaigns that they played kind of hit like an epic ending, but they have played those characters again in like epilogue games later. Mm -hmm. You don't necessarily need to abandon those characters forever, but sometimes when you have had like an epic ending to something, you want to let it breathe too. Yeah. So coming back to that character that, you know, made it up to the 12th level and then maybe a few, you know, a year later you come up with this really neat one shot where you can pull all those characters back in. That might be what you want to do, but if the adventure had a pretty epic ending, you don't want to then, you know, go back to working as caravan guards. It's kind of a letdown at that point.
0: Yeah, yeah.
2: I also think that if you, especially like an adventure, an adventure like uh, Tyranny of Dragons, like if you get to the end of that, have a thing where you let your players narrate their their epilogues. Like if you really want to give them a sense of closure... Sometimes that's the sense of closure that people want. And to plug somebody else here, Phil and Senda actually had an episode of Pandas Talking Games about a month ago, I think, where they were talking about doing epilogues for games. So you should go listen to that, too.
0: So when I played Tyranny of the Dragon Queen, three of the six players at the very end after we defeated Tiamat <laughs> forced her back into our portal jumped into the portal after her (laughs) to continue the fight. My character was like, nope, good luck. Farewell, I'll raise a glass to you. And Mm. I mean, Zalus had a never-ending mug of ale from Cord anyway, so she did that right then and there, but she was not jumping in after the paladin, the barbarian, and the monk. (laughs) The warlock, the thief, and the cleric all went, good luck.
2: I'll miss you guys. (laughs) So what about stringing together multiple published adventures into a campaign?
0: You know, this is doable, but it's worth considering what the adventures you want to use are offering. As Jared mentioned earlier in the episode, 5th Edition has done a lot of publishing campaign books that get you through multiple levels with the adventures built right in. You can totally pick and choose solo, you know, like single story adventures to string together. But if you really want to do that, it might be worth taking a look at the, the published adventures that Wizards has put out because one of those might fit what you want to do anyway and already give you the rich framework to get the characters through multiple levels. Now, if it's a matter of you're running a campaign and you just want a little help for an adventure here or there, that can totally be done. Mm-hmm. That can totally be done. There's multiple anthology adventure books white plume mountain um the new one that's coming out he's the golden vault I,
2: I may have just written a very long series looking at every one of the adventures in there on my blog
0: it may actually <laughs> be sitting outside of my garage door right now it has been saying it's ready to be delivered for about three hours now anyway you can do this but you you kind of want to take consideration of why you want to do that, what it's going to be giving you and whether or not it's going to actually give you the cohesive campaign you want to give your players.
2: It is interesting too, that um, in fifth edition, it is not as much like in other editions where there are adventures that are meant to be played maybe for four sessions. There are almost everything that gets published is something that is meant to take you through a lot of different levels of play. Dragon Heist is probably one of the shorter, of the uh, published adventures. WotC has done a few anthologies now. Um, They did um, Tales from the Yawning Portal, which was actually a bunch of older edition things upgraded to fifth edition.
0: That's what the the White Blue Mountain was in.
2: Yeah. Ghosts of Salt Marsh is kind of weird because it's sort of an anthology, but they also kind of string it together a little bit more than, say, Tales from the Yawning Portal. Candlekeep Mysteries is another one that is an anthology that, it's not really a campaign, but all of them start in Candlekeep. In the Forgotten Realms and then like Keys from the Golden Vault which just came out. That one has a little bit more of a structure where you can play it as a campaign because there is a patron that you can have that will keep feeding you to the next adventure. But when it comes to just having single adventures that you can pull out of different places, there aren't nearly as many in 5th edition unless you go to third party. Yeah. Kobold Press has a lot of uh, Warlock layers, which are like short one or two session adventures that they have published that you can buy on their site. Fly Flourish has done several adventure anthologies at this point. I am sure there are others, but... <laughs> The point is, it's more of a challenge in 5e to piecemeal adventures together into a campaign, I think, than it was in previous uh, editions.
0: I mean, and of course, it always depends on what you and your group want to get out of it. If it's a beer and pretzels game night where the story doesn't matter as much as having just an engaging thing to do for the few hours you're together, do whatever. Yeah. If you have a group who's more engaged in the narrative and wants that story, I mean, I think you've been able to tell from listening to Jared and I that we are both very story-centric players <laughs> yes. and GMs, but it all depends on what you you and your group want.
2: For our final question here, why would you add a shorter published adventure into a homebrew campaign that you're running? For example, taking one of those adventures from one of those anthologies and sticking it right there in the middle of the, that campaign that you're writing yourself.
0: Because it fits? Because I need the help? <laughs> I mean, ultimately, there can be a wide variety of reasons to add in that published adventure into an existing campaign. Sometimes it works with what you've already got going on. Sometimes you just need a little extra help to get through the next part of the campaign. <laughs> this isn't D and but when I was running my Savage Worlds ETU campaign, I was mostly running off of their one sheets and some of the larger adventures, all based on the Degrees of Horror Plot Point campaign, and it let me kind of pull in what felt right at the right time. And you can do that with your 5e campaign. Mm -hmm. I I have to confess that I kind of did the opposite of this (laughs) with the Dragon Heist campaign, where I actually inserted some adventures that I wrote instead of (laughs) what was happening in the campaign, partially make up for losing chapter two, (laughs) but there was a whole adventure rescuing some people from some ublex. They're horrifying, horrifying oozes that are in in D&D monsters. And my players were afraid of them ever afterwards. Um, And then there was the adventure where I sent them out into the world to get nature on them. (laughs) Basically, it's a city-based campaign. They made city characters and they're asked to go out to the forest to retrieve a berry that only blooms under a certain moon on a certain night. So, you know, I have this shot of water adventure in the middle of the dragon heist campaign where they went to the forest to get these berries mm-hmm. you know so <laughs> it's like you can you can mix and match to fit what your group needs
2: oh yeah i think sometimes it's good just to recharge your batteries if you've read an adventure and you're like you know what this would generally fit into this campaign and i don't feel like coming up with what we're going to do next and honestly there's been times when i know what i want people to do two or three steps down the road In a campaign but i don't know what i want them to do next yeah (laughs) and sometimes that next thing could just be a published adventure
0: honestly you have a session that doesn't go well where it didn't work like you wanted it to sometimes using a published adventure next can help as you said reset your batteries Mm -hmm. put you back on track because you don't have to do the heavy lifting of crafting the whole thing for your players at once
2: and then the flip side is there are some adventures that are like isolated adventures that aren't campaigns that are just so damn cool that you want to use them at some point. So if your (laughs) PCs get anywhere near a place where you could use that adventure, you want to shove that in there. I will point this out. There is an adventure in, um, he's from the golden vault, which is a train that travels through different planes of existence that builds its own track as it's moving and is manned by Modron. (laughs) If I ever have someone the right level, that is doing even vaguely planar-related adventures, I want to use that adventure!
0: <laughs> I mean, you are trying to make Ivy go to the planes.
2: <laughs> I'm almost scared to see how all of you would react to uh, dealing with Modrons. We are creatures of pure law. Please don't hurt us.
0: Oh, God, that is not our group. <laughs> anyway, moving into downtime research... Time for us, you two. Get on with your downtime research. Every episode, we're going to look for something related to D&D that we want to pass along to our listeners. It might be products, websites, videos, or podcasts, but it will always be something that we think will enhance your D&D experience.
2: Originally, I was just going to mention the Critical Role soundtracks because they have Welcome to dry and Welcome to Wildmount" out there. And you should still get a chance to listen to them if you, uh, if you have it. But I found something cooler, and that there. they're... Are vinyl albums that have come out for the Legends of Machina animated series. Now, you may say, What are you, some kind of hipster, telling me to get vinyl? (laughs) Okay, valid. But what's really cool about these is the albums are made out of this clear plastic, and in concentric circles around the albums are different scenes from the series. So you have all these different animation cells that are basically in concentric circles around this clear vinyl album of the soundtrack of the TV series. You cannot tell me that's not cool.
0: (laughs) That is pretty cool. I have absolutely no way of playing and listening to a vinyl record, but that does sound really cool.
2: It's so weird seeing record players in a Walmart now. Yeah.
0: (laughs) They've kind of come back. Yeah. I I think it's, it's gotten to the point where anybody who wants to listen to actual media and not just <laughs> digital music is like no no let's go back to vinyl it was the best sound. <laughs> I personally don't have the ears to tell the difference because like I I like hear people with the ears for it rail against stuff like Spotify mm-hmm. all the time because of the the downsampling that happens and I'm like I I. <sighs> I might have the eyes for it, but I don't have the ears for it.
2: That's okay. I'm sure there's people thinking I'm heretical for listening to music on bone conductive uh, headphones, too, because those are not the best for listening to music either. (laughs) However, if you want to find this, there'll be a link in the show notes. It's the Legend of Vox Machina Amazon Original Series Soundtrack Zoetrope Picture Discs.
0: So apparently... There is a D&D TV show coming to Paramount+. Plus. <laughs> uh, this got announced recently, and I'll have a link to a Gizmodo article in the show notes. And I will say the success of this probably depends on how successful the movie is. If the movie bombs, I fully expect the news of this show <laughs> to fade into the mists and never be heard from again. If successful, well, we'll probably see something come to TV. It is honestly a very cool time to be a nerd. (laughs) Also, as a general note, um, I wanted to let folks know that Gnome Stew is always open for submissions for guest articles. If you got something you want to say about RPGs, D&D, whatever, we'd like to hear what you have to say. There will be a link in the show notes to the submission form, and you can also find it on the Gnome Stew website under About And write for Gnome Stew. We are not a place for hot takes and stuff to get people angry and just generate clicks. But if you have something interesting and honest you want to say about gaming, let us know what you want to say and we'll see if we can work something out for the guest article. We are
2: happily part of the Misdirected Mark Productions Network, so we wanted to give a shout out to another MMP show. If you're enjoying our show, also consider checking out...
0: This is so weird that I'm reading this one. (laughs) The Gnome Cast! Several gnomes from Gnome Stew get together to talk about gaming topics and themselves in an effort to entertain you and avoid being thrown in the stew.
2: Dude, and why was that weird?
0: First of all, I never read the show blurbs because I'm already talking too much for Gnome Stew. We also never talk about Gnomecast on the Gnomecast. So there
1: you go.
2: Gnomecast is.
0: We don't talk about the Gnomecast.
2: All right, we've used up all of our resources, so I think it's time for a long rest. I hope this adventure was rewarding for you. We hope you'll go exploring with us as when we start our next adventure.